is Father's Day. Supposedly, it began in 1908 in Fairmont, West Virginia, if you look at the history of it, and uh, a woman named Grace Clayton held an event at her church inspired by the loss of her father. But if you look at it in the history, uh, Father's Day, the first, the first father and the first mother was a tragedy when they had their first sons, Cain and Abel. And the history of the world has been strewn by fathers who have repeated some of those similar or even more egregious sins. When I think of Father's Day, what is most encouraging to me, I go to where we were at in the Sermon on the Mount, and I read to you, these are present imperatives. In other words, the command isn't just perform at one time, but keep on doing this. Keep on, keep on requesting, and it'll be given to you. Keep on seeking, and you will find. Keep on knocking, and it'll be open to you. Or which one of you, if his son asks them for bread, the grammar here goes, well, of course not. He's not going to give him a stone. Or if he asks for a fish, are you going to give him a serpent? And here it is. If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give good gifts to those who ask him. If you are here this morning, everybody is a son by creation, but not everybody is a son by new creation. But if you are a son here by new creation, you have a heavenly father. And he says, you ask of me. Even fallen men and women know how to give good gifts to their offspring, but our Heavenly Father never gives bad gifts to His children, and we're to ask. And so when I begin to judge God by my circumstances rather than by this revelation, I have fallen short. We have a good Heavenly Father, and He gives good gifts. And I am reminded on Father's Day that I am still a fallen father, redeemed but still a fallen father in the process of being sanctified and brought into greater conformity to the image of his own dear son. And one of the way that happens is by us this morning, corporately opening the word of God. This is the height of our worship this morning is to open the book, examine our hearts and our lives in light of what God has to say, and then cry out, Lord, Bring me into greater conformity to the image of your own dear Son. Lord, we look to heaven for help. Our help and hope is found in our Lord Jesus Christ, that great redemption that he has provided. I don't know the hearts of each person here this morning. You do work in the heart and life of each person to bring glory to yourself. Where there is sin, reveal it. Where there is hardness of heart, break it down. Where there is sadness and sorrow, may the comfort that only you can provide be brought. So we look to you, in Jesus' name, amen. The most important thought that you will have this day and in your life is this. Who is God? Who is God? What, what comes to your mind when you think about God? If you go to... Some of you have been to the Sistine Chapel, and you look at Michelangelo. I think I'm all right without a glass of water here.
his great work in the Sistine Chapel, and you'll look up there and you'll see a picture of God the Father with white flowing hair as an old man. It may be beautiful art, but when we think about God, when you come down to Exodus chapter 20, when we think about God there at that time in history, don't think about physicality. Don't think about a body. Oh, you think about a person, but not a person like we think about. He is a spirit being. And not only should I not make images of God, of anything underneath the sun, but I shouldn't even think about him like that. If I think about him like that, I'm already engaging in idolatry. I am thinking about God, how he doesn't that he doesn't exist like that. So how should I think about God? Well, you just look at that great revelation in Exodus chapter 34, verse 6, when, Math, when Moses said to the Lord, Show me your kavod, your glory, your weight, your importance. And the Lord said, Moses, nobody can see that and live. But I'll give you just a little taste of it. But you get over there in the cleft of the rock, and I'm going to pass by, and here's what the Lord had to say. He proclaimed his name. He proclaimed who he is. He proclaimed how to think about him. I am Yahweh. I am the covenantal God. I am a God of compassion. I am a God of grace. I am slow to anger. Don't think I, you can't provoke me to anger, but thankfully, he is slow to anger. And he is full of that word that is so hard to bring across in translations. Chesed is covenantal loyalty to his people. He's overflowing in it. He forgives moral perversity, he forgives transgression, he forgives sin in general, but he will by no means clear the guilty. That's how we need to think about God. But all of that has changed with the Incarnation. I should never get over what it means for God himself to take on human flesh and have a body now throughout eternity. I'm so, I've read the Bible so many times. I've translated these passages, and I say, does that still grip my heart that God himself has taken on a body. So now when I think about God and I think about Jesus Christ, it is, it is not idolatry to think about God as a man, a man who is full humanity and he is full deity and he will be like that forever. One of the great promises in the Bible for the people of God is that we will see God. We will see him. And he who has this hope in him purifies himself, even as that person, God himself, is pure. We're in a study of Matthew, the lower-level tax collector despised for his covetousness and more so for doing the work of the Romans. But he embraced the Savior. Matthew was certainly not an uneducated thug. He's been putting his literary and his organizational skills to work in writing this gospel according to Matthew. I take it he probably knew several international languages because he was up there on an international road passing through Capernaum, and there would be people passing by from up in Syria, out of Damascus, down, and he, and he had to converse with them. And so we see here he not only left all to follow Jesus when Jesus said, come follow me, but he threw a great banquet for his fellow tax collectors and other sinners to meet Jesus as well. And now we have before us a written select history of the words and works of Jesus who is the great physician, 
that are going to point us to him, the one who calls not the righteous but sinners to repentance. We have looked at his royal lineage, his virgin birth, his fulfillment of Old Testament scriptures, the father's protection of his son against Herod's murderous onslaught, the announcement of the forerunner, the baptism, the temptation accounts. And then we came to chapters 5 through 7, which is really a summary of the teaching of Jesus. And the bottom line is always this. If you're going to be part of his kingdom, if you're going to have to have your sins forgiven, you have to repent and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And after that first great sermon, the words of Jesus, now we have the works of Jesus. And so that's where we have been progressing in the gospel. And we come this morning to three more miracles that result for some superficial amazement because the very same people that are going to be lauding him are going to be there yelling, crucify him, crucify him, and then we'll see the rising opposition in the Pharisees. So I think Matthew, with his organizational skills and his challenge, he, he, he gives us these miracles in, in triplets, probably, and sometimes they're in chronological order, and sometimes they're not. Sometimes they're topical order, following his theme. So we began... After the sermon, he's coming down, what did we find? Well, there was a healing of an unclean leper. Surely, with the crowds following him, and he's yelling, unclean. And the people go, what is this guy doing here? And he comes up finally to Jesus. He says, if you are willing, you can make me clean. And Jesus says, I am willing. And he heals a leper. We, we looked at the healing of the centurion's young Slave, his young, his young, I take it was probably a young boy in his service. And the centurion loved that young boy, and he made a point to come and send envoys to Jesus. He said, Look, I'm a man, and I'm in authority over people, and I recognize you are too. You don't even have to come to my house. And we have the first recorded healing without even Jesus being present there and healing. And healing of even Peter's mother-in-law going into home that might be insignificant to some. But he went in and just took her by the hand as she had a great fever and he raised her up instantaneously healed and serving them. And then that evening... I take what was Shabbat, and they brought to him, and everyone that they brought to them, him he healed, without exception in that account. And everyone who came in who was demon-possessed, he cast out the demons without exception. So when I think about God, this is what I ought to think about. This is my God now manifesting himself here upon planet Earth and I ought to think about his authority, his compassion, and his forgiveness that was granted. And in between these triplets of healing, we have these um, challenges to superficial discipleship. One comes along and says, uh, Lord, I'm seeing all these great healings. I'm going to follow you wherever you go. He says, check that wherever. Check that wherever. The Son of Man has nowhere to lay to lay his head. And then another comes along and he says, Well, Lord, I'll, I'll follow you, but first, first. And Jesus says, No, there are no firsts. You put me first or, or you're not in discipleship. And then we look to another trio of healings with Matthew with his literary skill. The great storm became a great calm. These, these, these weren't... These were seaworthy men there on the Sea of Galilee. They had seen squalls before, but this one, it's not abandoned ship and swim to the shore. You're not going to make it. Master, wake up. We're perishing. Boom, just like that, an instant calm. I've never seen anything like that before, nor had anyone else. Here's the one who controls the winds and the waves. And 
What a striking account that was, not only of the wind and the waves, but he also controls a world that we cannot see with the visible eye. We may see manifestations of it. And now you have the two demoniacs. They land over there, headed towards the Decapolis. They get out, and what takes place? Two demoniacs rush down as if they're going to overpower people like they always have, and they get a little surprised. One of them happens to be Jesus, and they don't have any option at that point. They must obey and submit to him. And then at the end of the count, what do we have there? Here was one of the demoniacs, and Jesus asked them, what is your name? Legion. We get a, we get a little picture of what that was like when Jesus permitted them to go into about 2,000 swine and rush down the cliff and perish. And so instead of a man running around wild out among the tombs, isolated, naked, he's sitting, clothed in his right mind. This is the God that we are to worship revealed in Jesus Christ. And all oh, to have friends like these four men. Here's a paralytic. He can't walk. So they put him on some type of makeshift litter, and they carry him over. And Jesus is teaching inside the house. I think it was probably Peter's house. And the scribes and Pharisees are sitting around and skeptical in their hearts. And Jesus knows their reasoning. And they go, how are we going to get our friend that down to Jesus, and so they can't even get in the door of such a crowd. And so there's steps on the outside. They went around, they walked up on the roof. We looked at it. They'd have beams, but they probably started on the edge. Let's make sure we're not knocking the beams out. Cutting down, I don't know what kind of instruments they managed to obtain. Cutting through that hard clay big enough to lower the man down. Can you imagine? If we had somebody making a hole in the roof here, I would probably just stop teaching, you know. I go, nobody's going to pay any attention to me anymore. Jesus got right on until they lowered the man down. And what does Jesus say? This man's hoping to be healed of his paralysis. And Jesus gives him something greater. Your sins are forgiven. And now the Pharisees are sitting around and it says in their hearts, they're reasoning in their hearts. You see, Jesus could see their hearts. He could see their thoughts. He could see their motives. Who is this man who thinks he can forgive sins? And Jesus says, which is easier? I'll show you I have authority to forgive sins. Take up your pallet, that little stretcher or whatever makeshift they carry you, and, and head out the door and head home. Now, we're then followed by another challenge, dual challenge of the true nature of discipleship, the call of Matthew. Then that whole question about fasting, you can't, you can't take the old wine and put it into new wineskins or old wineskins. You can't put new wine into old wineskins. It's going to burst. You're going you're gonna to destroy the wineskins and lose the wine. He does the same thing about sewing a patch a new patch onto old clothing. It doesn't go, and so Jesus says, look, those things that you're trying to demand of the disciples, oh, there will come a time when they will fast, but you got the bridegroom with them. This is to be a time of joy. And then we come to the third triplet of healings, which will then complete this section of, of the works of Jesus, and then we will come to, there are five major discourses in Matthew, and then we will come to the next major discourse. So we come to this one, it's recorded in Matthew chapter 9, Mark chapter 5, and Luke chapter 8. And I remind you of what Fritz read for us at the beginning. When John heard that Jesus was in prison about the deeds of Christ. He sent word by his disciples and said to him, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? Jesus said, Go tell John what you hear and see. 
The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, and the dead are raised up. The dead are raised up, the blind receive their sight, the deaf hear. And so Matthew here gives us three examples of that, real historical situations that point us to the identity of Jesus Christ. But right in the middle of these, we'll have kind of a two-for-one in this request by the healing uh, by Jairus, a ruler of the synagogue. He comes for his daughter, but there's an interruption, and we're going to find out that his daughter actually dies in the meantime because a woman came who had a hemorrhage. The girl is 12 years old. She's only lived on, on this planet for 12 years. But here comes a woman who's had a chronic flow of blood for 12 years. The little girl was the pride and the joy of her parents. The woman has endured misery for 12 years. And we're going to see how those two are interlocked, intertwined, interconnected in a way that we don't suspect. Now, Matthew only has about a third of the material in Mark and Luke. And when we look at these accounts, these are all real history. So sometimes people will look at these and say, well, you can't, you can't harmonize them. No, these are, these are real accounts. They're real history. They don't always, not every writer includes all the facts. Um, but they're not a fabrication of a literary artist. But here they're connected. How are they connected? By divine providence. So I'm going to start, instead of Matthew, if you'll turn over to the Lucan account, uh, and we will, we will start there. Uh, Mark and Luke have a longer account than Matthew, and we will come back to the Matthean account here shortly. I'm going to begin in Luke chapter 8, verse 40. And so uh, I, I take it Matthew probably has the right chronology of that. This one's going to be topical. Luke 8, 40, when Jesus returned, he's come back from the Decapolis area. The crowd welcomed him. They're all waiting for him. And that's when that ends that narrative. And now we come to what actually is Jesus has been teaching uh, in the synagogue. And a man named Jairus, who was a ruler of the synagogue, comes. So you can see the crowd swelling around him. And here comes a ruler of the synagogue. He wasn't part of the Sanhedrin, wasn't one of the Pharisees. But to be a ruler of the synagogue was a man of great social standing. He would have been a respected leader there of the city. Uh, the synagogues apparently arose during exile, uh, intertestamental period. You have to have at least 10 men. Uh, and there would be the chanting of prayers, the reading of Torah, the biblical text. They were always central to synagogue services and the known Jewish world in that town would revolve around the synagogue and worship there. Uh, when we were in Israel, those who have been there, there are synagogues, number of them uh, around Galilee. And the leading official in Hebrew would be called Rosh HaKnesset, but here it's the Greek equivalent to that. He was responsible not only for the upkeep and operation of the synagogue, but also for the order and sanctity of the services. And uh, he had the responsibility of selecting the Torah selections. He may have read it himself. Remember, in, in Jesus came in and they handed him the scroll. So uh, a man, a Jewish man, could stand up and he could read a section of the scroll and give, make some remarks upon it. So when he comes through the crowd and he's coming up to Jesus, the first thing that we, we find out is his humility. Not every synagogue leader is going to embrace Jesus. But this man 
He comes and he falls at Jesus' feet. And we find out what the problem was. He implored him. He was beseeching him to come to his house. He had an only daughter, about 12 years old, and she's in the process of dying. That's the verb that's in an imperfect tense. This is going on, and it's getting closer that this is going to take place. And suddenly, we have an interruption in the text, not by literary design, was because this was what really happened. So here we have a 12-year-old girl approaching the prime of life and a father who is desperate for his daughter. I've walked through death with some parents in our small church, the awful, crushing, emotional pain and sorrow of bearing a daughter or a son or of husbands bearing their wives and bearing their husbands, one of the most poignant ones that I remember. I stood next to a dad. I put my arm around him. And he says to me, this isn't right. This isn't right. I, sh I shouldn't be bearing my son. I don't have all the answers, but I know God doesn't make mistakes. I put my arm around him. I loved him. I prayed with him. These are hard times. This, this is the ruler of the synagogue. He's desperate. His 12-year-old his daughter is dying. What's he going to do? Well, he heard about Jesus. He may, you, you would have to have your head stuck in a hole in the ground by this juncture not to have heard or at least seen Jesus in the, in the healings and what he has done. And so he comes to him. You know, let me hit the pause button here. Think, think with me about the loss of believing parents who have had young children. John Owens, the greatest of the Puritan writers with towering intellect, yet great depths of sorrow in his family. He had 11 children. You know how many reached adulthood? One. Charles Wesley had eight children, but he and his wife saw five of them die in infancy. B.N. Palmer, one of the great theologians during the Civil, Presbyterian theologian during the Civil War, 54 years consecutively in the pastorate. lost a small boy and four daughters. Now, with improved diagnostic tools and treatments, it may not be as frequent as it was in the first century, but it still happens. And Jairus doesn't want to be one of those. He doesn't want to be one of those who lost his little daughter. And so he comes to the feet of Jesus, implored him Earnestly, flip, flip, flip over to Mark because I don't want you to miss this. It's it's Mark five, twenty-three. I'm going to start in twenty-two. Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name, and seeing him, he fell at his fleet feet, and he implored him. Now this is usually translated something like earnestly or urgently. It's it's a Greek adjective meaning much, palus, but it, it's, it's, it's turned, it can be turned into a, an, an adverb, which it does here, and it says he was pleading with Jesus urgently, fervently. This is, that, that alone conveys his desperation. My daughter's about to die. 
I need you to come to my house. Don't delay. Do it now. Maybe she's going to be dead by the time you get there. And what does Jesus do? He went with him. And a great crowd followed him and thronged about him. So they're on the way to the ruler of the synagogue's house. Now flip over to Matthew, where we started. We're in chapter 8, chapter 9, and verse 18. While he was saying these things to them, namely, he's teaching them, that's, the, that's this I take is not the topical, but the chronological context. The ruler came in and knelt before him saying, now watch this, my daughter has just died. You go, well, no, Mark and Luke say she was in the process of dying, and so you will look at skeptical scholars, and they will say, well, there, there you have it. Text is, is hopelessly at odds, and you can't put those things together. One says she was dying, and here with Matthew says she was dead. Now, let, let me address that here briefly. Matthew we have already seen that he condenses or shortens accounts. So what Matthew wants to stress here is that Jesus brought a child back to life. He doesn't mention the envoys. He doesn't mention, he doesn't contradict those things. He's just saying he's going to pick up at the point that we're going to see later on when someone comes, they're on their way, and messengers come from the ruler of the synagogue's house, and say, uh, it's too late, your daughter has already died. And we've seen that before. Remember when the uh, centurion, it, it would appear from Matthew that uh, the centurion himself came to Jesus. But when we read Mark and Luke, no, he didn't. There were some envoys. So we pick it up here and think about uh, the disappointment that happens to this ruler. My daughter has just died. And, and that's why trying to do harmonizations, you'll see in an NIV footnote there, and take this and is dying to harm. No, you don't, you don't adjust the text. The verb says that the little girl has died. Now let's go back over to Mark chapter 5 and get a fuller account here. So the initial request, if you look down, we're going to first of all look at the interruption, but if you look at 535, while Jesus, while he was still speaking, there came from the ruler's house some who said, your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher anymore? That's at the point where Matthew begins. He doesn't contradict the other things. But here in the meantime, so we have, we have a ruler of a synagogue, well-respected man, leader in the Jewish community, desperate for the life of his young daughter, and he comes and he kneels down and he bows and he's urgently, that, that much urgently, come, come, my daughter's about ready to die. And all of a sudden, we meet another desperate person. We're introduced to her here in the fullness of the account. The crowds following him, throng, thronging about him. Mark 5, 25, and there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years. Now, if you're a Jewish woman, and most assume that this is a discharge of blood from the womb, whether it was continual, she was probably anemic. And do you realize what this would mean for her in terms of Leviticus? She's unclean. 
You can't touch this woman. Anything she lies on or sits on is ceremonial unclean. She can't, you can't invite her to her house. She can't invite guests in. She's not allowed to go to the synagogue. She's really ostracized from everything. And it's not that she didn't try to get this taken care of. Look at the text. Who had suffered much under many physicians and had spent all that she had and was no better but rather grew worse. I know I was listening to a physician teach on this, and he goes, this is kind of an indictment on thinking that we physicians can heal everything. He said, now, if, if you read the Talmud for this particular problem, they had 11 different cures to try. One's in a hierarchy, but the last one, and, and they, they keep getting worse, the last one is just superstition. You take a Persian onion, and you mix it in some wine, and you set her out there where two roads come together, and you have her drink this mix, and you sneak up behind her and go, whoo, and you terrify her. Now, I don't know how many of these, these things she had tried. Some may have been homeopathic uh, treatments that may have worked for some, but, but here she has tried. She's exhausted. She's a social outcast. And so how are you going to preach? Just like the unclean leper, he can cry out, unclean, unclean, what's she going to do? And so I don't know if she was incognito. Look, if she has gone to physicians and trying this for 12 years, people know who this Jewish woman is in this community. I don't know if she changed her dress, disguised herself, but she comes up, and she comes up from behind. Look at the account. And she had heard the reports about Jesus and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. Luke has, she touched the fringe of his garment, and that word crospedon, it could mean that actually the hem around, but you remember what in, in uh, Numbers, what in Exodus as well, what was every male Jewish man supposed to attach? Tassels, tassels. You had four of them. You could go on the internet and look today, they're very, they're very fancy. Um, Jews still, Orthodox Jews still wear them in Israel. Um, we read, we will read uh, in the Gospels that the Pharisees, they made theirs very ornate. You know, it's a point to me to look at. And, and what were those things supposed to do, those four tassels? It remind you to obey God's commandments. And so I take it that Jesus would have worn that type of an outer garment. He obeyed the law. And so she doesn't touch the person of Jesus. She either touches just the hem, but I take it this is probably those tassels coming down. And, she, and she's thinking, if only I could get close enough to him to do that. Now, some say the woman was just filled with superstition. I don't know that. I don't know that she was superstitious. And when you look at over and over again in the Gospels, what are people, come, lay your hands on. We need your touch. Goes to Peter's mother-in-law, what does he do? He grasped her by the hand. And so, but she's thinking, I'm ceremonial unclean. Maybe if I can sneak through the crowd and get closer enough and just grab one of those tassels. And look what happens. Immediately, the flow of blood dried up. She knew, she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. No request, just grabbing a hold. Now, liberal commentators, you know, well, this this is this is a mythical account. It's like Jesus is a is a is a battery, and you just you know you you touch him, and some some electric volts come out. Or said no, because watch, Jesus knows what has taken place. She she hasn't touched him, and. Mark describes the crowds are pressing all upon him, and they're hemming him in. One, one, it's like pressure on his on his very body, and somehow she works her way up there and just touches that, and immediately she's healed. So what does Jesus do? 
he recognizes in himself that power, authority had gone out from him and immediately turns about in the crowd and says, who touched my garments? Now, this, this is one of the questions. When you see these things in the Bible and Jesus asks these questions, it's not because he doesn't know the answer. It's the same thing. You go back to the fall when he asks Adam and Eve, you know, <laughs> have you eaten of that fruit that you should not have eaten of? You know, uh, I, I don't really know if you've done that or not. No, of course not. And so here, Jesus is asking a question. Why? He is trying to draw something out of the woman. He is going to help her. She had some fledgling faith. At least she knew enough to come to Jesus, and now Jesus is going to help her. And so he says, perceiving in himself the power had gone out from him, he turns about in the crowd and says, who touched my garments? And, you know, and here's the disciples going, seriously. <laughs> and Peter is, is the other spokesman. You know, this is, preachers do this a lot. I'm, I'm guilty, you know. You spoke and you put your foot in your mouth, so you take that foot out, and no sooner you put your other foot in your mouth. And Peter is doing that regularly. I'm thankful for Peter. I don't feel so bad all the time um, when I have to confess my uh, uh, sin, verbal sins like that. He goes, Peter goes, seriously, Lord? <laughs> People are pressing against you, and, and you're trying to say, who touched me? But really, she didn't touch Jesus. She grasped the edge, that tassel. So see, he looked around to see who had done it. He knew precisely who had done it. He knew why he was asking the question. And the woman, see, here's, here's the question. This is drawing out something from her. The woman, knowing what had happened to her, it came in fear, and she's trembling. This is, this is such a wonderful statement. Listen to this. She fell down before and told him the whole truth. Not part of the truth. Didn't make excuses. You know why it's good to always tell God the whole truth? He already knows it anyway. <laughs> You're just letting him know that you agree with him with the truth. And so she, she tells him everything that had happened. And what does he say to her? Now he increases. He's, he, he's on her side. Daughter. Did you catch that term? How, what was the Jairus there for? The healing of his what? His daughter. How old was she? Twelve years old. Now, this woman may have been older than Jesus. I, I don't know if she had this this problem for 12 years, but anyway, is, is not, uh, certainly Jesus never married, he doesn't have a physical family. What's he doing calling her daughter? This is a term of, of affection, a family relationship. Daughter, he's encouraging her, he's helping her. Your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. Now, one caveat here. Some people will camp on a verse like this, exclude the rest of the Gospels, and say, if you're not healed, it's because you didn't have enough faith to, to be healed. Okay, ask the centurion's little servant how much faith he had. It wasn't his faith at all. Look at the accounts. You have to take all of them into account. So now we have then this resumption of the account while he was still speaking there came for the ruler's house some who said your daughter is dead why trouble the teacher anymore can you think of the disappointment for that man he came he was urgent he's imploring and now you have this little interruption and suddenly the good God of heaven above isn't so good anymore he didn't show up on time we're right there John 11, it's the same thing. If God doesn't do something on my timetable, he must not be a good God or he's not omnipotent. And even Mary and Martha, hey, Lord, if you would have been here, my brother would not have died. And he says, no, I'm not four days late by mistake. I'm four days late on time. And you're going to see something of the glory 
of God. And so we're going to see it here. And so he comes to the house with the ruler of the synagogue. There's a lot of weeping and wailing loudly. Now, if you have never seen this, when I, when I go to a, a memorial service, general, they're fairly calm. They're, they're tears, but nobody's usually um, wailing and weeping at the top of their voices. But that's taken place here because it was also a custom that they would hire professional mourners to come. And so they have showed up, and uh, it, it's really pretty... Uh, to, to see this, if you have ever been to one where this has taken place, it, it's jaw-dropping to me. But this was common then. And even the, even the Jewish literature said, look, even if you're a poor person, you ought to have at least one flute player and one, one wailer for you to express grief. And so Jesus comes and he sees all this commotion and he just... Nope, you people leave. The child's not dead. He's only sleeping. And they're gone. We got a wacko here. He didn't show up on time, and he thinks that child is only, is only sleeping. Now, think about sleep in the Bible as a metaphor for death. When you sleep, you're going to wake up. Sleep as death is not final. As a matter of fact, we're going to see that here what happens at the end and a phrase that is, that is used, the Spirit returns to her. Let's go back to Matthew. I'm running out of time. Verse 23, when Jesus came to the ruler's house, all the flute players, the crowd make a commotion. He said, go away. The girl's not dead, but sleeping. And, and this is a tense of the verb. They were mocking him. They were laughing at him. They were scorning him. You, you know, nobody's there in that crowd expecting him to bring this little girl back to life. So he gets the crowd out, and he goes in. Mark and Luke's tell us he only took three of his disciples along, Peter, James, and John, and then the father and the mother. And he took her by the hand, and the girl arose. Luke adds, Dr. Luke says this, her spirit returned to her. You know what death is? Death is not the final cessation of your existence. Physical death is your spirit departs from your body. Your body is left here. The curse has not been totally lifted. There's going to be decay. But Jesus is coming back. And there is going to be a great resurrection. But where does the spirit go? Well, it doesn't cease to exist. For those of us who know Christ, it's present with him. And those who don't know him, it's final for you. The, the torment that will go on forever has only begun. And so the importance here of knowing Christ the Savior. Now, there are two more here in terms of the uh, blind men, the, the demoniac. Uh, um, I'm going to do this in two minutes. Let me, uh, I'm going to skip the two blind men, and they could make a distinction between muteness and muteness by uh, demon possession as you, as you look at the account here. But I just want you to look at the response here in Matthew chapter 9. Go, go down to verse 33. The crowds marveled, saying, Never was anything like this seen in Israel. But the Pharisees, who hardened their hearts, they said, He cast out demons by the prince of demons. The report went out through that land. The crowds were stunned. The Pharisees hardened their hearts. But now, today, this morning, the Scriptures direct us to its author. This is Jesus, the one who saves his people from their sin. The dead rise. 
the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed. What is your response to Jesus? Are you hearing and obeying his words? Are you growing in truth and grace? Jesus may seem to be most severe when he's doing us much good. Take the bleeding woman. Her, uh, she was involved in embarrassment when she was called out. One can only imagine how she shuddered when she heard the words, Who touched me? But his intent wasn't to embarrass her. It was gracious. He's, he wanted to clarify her faith. Another commentator, he takes Jairus. He delays and sets up Jairus with shattering disappointment and then says, only believe. But these episodes teach us, if we're his disciples, the severity of Jesus may be only the wrapping or prelude to his goodness. William Cooper's hymn, Behind a Frowning Providence, he smiles, hides a smiling face. We see Jairus' faith as well as his humility. But with the death of his daughter, Jesus calls him to a higher, deeper step of faith. You trusted me in what is urgent and desperate. Now trust me in what is hopeless. We do not today have... We can pray to God, but we do not have the assurance that he will heal every one of our physical infirmities the way he did there as a verification and authentication that he is indeed the Son of God. But we do have his assurance even in the face of death. You trust me, this is not the end. There will be a resurrection. Is your faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ and are you getting to know him better by knowing him through his word Jerry come lead us in the final hymn